we gather this Lord's Day as we assemble on the first day of every week to declare here that Jesus Christ is risen. We gather as the body of Christ testifying to the transformational power of the risen Savior in our lives. It doesn't matter the season, it doesn't matter the holiday, it doesn't matter the weather for that matter, and today it's beautiful, isn't it? It doesn't matter. We gather on the first day of the week, and as we do, it is the person and the work of the crucified, risen, ascended, reigning, and returning Christ that is here preeminent. Now there are days such as this Sunday and next week as well where a special emphasis coincides with the Lord's Day. And it is fitting, I think, for us to acknowledge those special days as we have already in prayer today, with today being Mother's Day. And we honor and we celebrate mothers. We're thankful for each one and we're thankful for the gift of God and the necessity of motherhood. Particularly, we give thanks for those mothers who are faithfully modeling Christ to the younger generation, and particularly for those who display the beauty of the gospel by honoring the God-assigned leadership of their husbands and knowing how God intends for the family to display His saving grace. We rejoice. We rejoice with you. We thank God for you. But our recognition of of Mother's Day, as special as that is, we all understand can add no importance to this day as it stands. It is the Lord's Day. It is the day on which we remember that Christ is risen. And the same will be true next week, May the 20th, which is a historic day in the life of Eden Baptist Church. It is a special day we want to recognize knowing that we add nothing to the fact that it is the Lord's Day. But having acknowledged all of that, one week from today we plan to formally dedicate this building to the cause of Christ and to the glory of God. Our good friend, Dr. Doug Bookman, will minister the word to us during the Bible class time next week and will also speak uh, during the service that day and then again during the dedication service as family and friends at 2 o'clock will join with us here. In worship, we will also be joined by Dr. Doug McLaughlin, and I, you will not want to miss what these men have to say, men of, uh, uh, who have experience in the work of God and are capable in delivering that word. They're coming to speak to us. They're coming to encourage us and to exhort us as we dedicate this building at 2 o'clock next week. The next seven days, if we include this day, the next eight days are going to be exhausting as we prepare for an open house here on Thursday and for the dedication service at 2 o'clock next week. There are many preparations to be made and there are many duties to be fulfilled by God's people. But I think our frenetic labors will prove fruitless should we fail in these next days to conform our focus to God's counsel. We need a word from the Lord. We will hear a word from the Lord as we are, by God's grace, supported by others from around uh, the region here and in our area. But we need a word from the Lord as we prepare for dedication. So where do we go? 
You can search the Bible from cover to cover to look for a church dedication service historically. There's not a line of instruction to us in how to think about such an event. In fact, there were no church buildings in the New Testament era. It wasn't for several hundred years after the start of the church that anybody had such a thing as a church building. But as we look back to the history of God's people, we do find a helpful description of the dedication of a building as we look to Solomon's temple in Jerusalem. And as we consider God's dealings with His people in that context, several underlying principles and heart attitudes will help us prepare for the dedication of a building in our context. Now the significance of all of this is not about a building, so don't anybody go running to the doors here. We, it, the significance of this is in our heart relationship with God. We are not the nation of Israel. This building is not the temple of God. In one sense of that statement. But there is light here in this text of the Old Testament. In light of this uh, revelation, I'd like us to ask, how should we think as we prepare our hearts for the dedication of our building next Lord's Day? To my knowledge, in the 30 years or so of this church's history, perhaps a little less than that, but in that time period, we've had one building dedication. We come to the second here, and only, it would seem, with the start of another church will we ever have another. So this is not something that we do very often. But I'd like us to turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 7. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, as we consider historically looking back to the people of God and the dedication of the temple. We are mining this for our own purposes here but seeking to be faithful with the text at these underlying attitudes, at, these, at some underlying principles that are here. Understanding again the setting, God has delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt. Poised on the border of the promised land, Israel is frozen by fear, fails to trust God, and then wanders in the desert for 40 years. God again prepares the nation to enter into the promised land, and as He does, He says, somewhere in that land I will locate a place for My name. He doesn't tell them where that is, and it's not for many years until they find that location as God providentially leads them to it. And finally, David does locate it. As he comes to power, providentially securing the site of Israel's temple. Then his son, King Solomon, builds God's temple on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. So as we come to this second book of Chronicles, chapters 3 and 4 record for us the construction of the temple, the furnishings of the temple. Chapter 5, with great pomp, Solomon brings the Ark of the Covenant to rest in the new temple. And it's over this covenant, this Ark of the Covenant, it's over this box that God's glory, that His presence will be objectified in the nation. He will be with His people in this temple. Chapter 6, Solomon offers a lengthy, impassioned prayer of dedication, seeking the blessing of God upon His people. We've looked into a part of that lengthy prayer here already this morning. 
we come then to 2 Chronicles 7. With all of that history of Israel, we come to the 7th chapter. The picture that we should gain here is Solomon kneeling on a raised platform, spreading out his hands in the temple courtyard. Chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. And here on his knees before the nation, he leads the people in prayer. As he is praying on his knees with his hands raised, there are sacrifices on the altar as this temple is being dedicated. That's the scene as we come to this chapter. God responds dramatically to Solomon's prayer. Verse 1, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. So fire from heaven consumes the sacrifices on, their, on the altar. Secondly, God's glory, probably shrouded here in a thick cloud, as chapter 5, verse 14 indicates, fills the temple and it overwhelms the priests who have to leave that temple. How do the people react to this divine response? Verse 3, when all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple... They bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshipped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. So think of the large temple complex and this massive pavement, uh, this courtyard surrounding the temple. The people are there listening, praying with Solomon as he leads. And then there's this dramatic response of God to that prayer, and what do they do? They fall down to their knees on this pavement, and with face to the ground, they worship God. They witness firsthand the terror of the Lord. They are stunned by this display of power, as we would be. But amazingly, in the midst of this situation... What is it that they see? What do they say? They praise the steadfast love of the Lord. When you see God for who He truly is, the first thing you realize is He's not safe. The Israelites did not need a whole lot of smarts to realize we're standing here and the fire of God falls and consumes these sacrifices. It doesn't take a lot of smarts to realize He could consume us. Just a little misdirection on this fire from God, and we're gone. God is not safe. But as they are on their knees with their faces to the ground, they say, but He's good but He's good. They praise God, and let's not miss the significance, for His steadfast love. Fear and thanksgiving combining. 
It's here that we understand the true God, His steadfast love. And this is, I'll admit, something of a side note, but I think it's important here as we see this God of consuming fire who is worshipped as, as a God of steadfast, loyal love. If your image of God is that of Mr. Celestial Nice Guy, you are worshiping, worshiping a sentimental idol that will destroy you. That's not the God of Scripture. Mr. Nice Guy. And if your image of God is that He stalks the earth with a scowl, with a nightstick in hand, looking for someone to beat up, that image of God as well will prove destructive. That's not who He is. He is this amazing, almost incomprehensible amalgamation of fear and joy, of power and judgment on the one hand, and on the other, steadfast, loyal love. He will never forsake His own. This is our God, a God of Scripture, a powerful judge who can rain terror upon sinners, but also a good God of steadfast love for His people. What we all need to do is to be reconciled to this God. And it would not be bad to do so on our knees with our faces to the ground. To realize in abject spiritual poverty, it is this God, it is this God, to whom I must be reconciled in my sin. But what is most significant, what is most significant contextually here, is the fact that God was in the house. That's the point. The temple has been built. It is there on Mount Zion, and God has come to fill this house. This temple was exquisitely built. It was a thing of beauty. But what made this building important was the fact that God's glory resided there. As was mentioned earlier here, the nations of the earth would offer sacrifices to their God. They'd eat them all. But this God comes and consumes the sacrifice on the altar. But He's in the house. And there's a real presence here as well in distinction from the idol temples around Israel. What makes this important is that God is here. Now, as we think of the application to ourselves and our own building dedication, God is not in our building in that same way, and we're not going to claim that He is. But how is it that God is in the house? How is it that He resides in His temple? As we come to the death of Jesus Christ and to God's working through Christ, we come to a whole new era in salvation history. And if I can choose just one verse that speaks to this end, 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 16 says, Do do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? The church of Jesus Christ is the temple of God the new living temple of God, and God does dwell here by His Spirit in His people. Individually, this is true, as one comes to saving faith in Christ, but I think the emphasis here of 1 Corinthians is corporately, that in us as His people, the Spirit of God has come to dwell. He's taken up His residence in the church, not in any building. As I said in the introduction, there was no church building for hundreds of years after the start of the church. 
not now in a physical building. God dwells by His Spirit in His people, the living church. So as we prepare to dedicate our building next week, we need to embrace two two realities. This may be very obvious to us, but I, I want us all, maybe particularly those who are younger among us, to get this idea clearly in view. We are the temple of God, not this building. And secondly, the glory is not located in us, but in God's indwelling Spirit within us. That's where the glory is. Just as the temple of God in Israel, it was the glory of God that made it ultimately glorious. And so it is here. Now the significance of the Spirit's indwelling is suggested in the next event in the temple's dedication. And again, it will take on new meaning in light of the cross of Christ. But let's go back to 1 Kings chapter 8. 1 Kings chapter 8, following the descent of God's glory after Solomon's prayer, that the blessing of Solomon is, is missed in 2 Chronicles. That is, it's skipped by the, by the author. Now, generally, it's best to let a book speak for itself and not to attempt too much by way of harmonization. But as this sermon's not part of a verse-by-verse walk through the book of 2 Chronicles, dipping back into 1 Kings, I think is very fitting here. But 1 Kings chapter 8, as we come to the end of that chapter, verse 54, we find the next thing. So Solomon's praying before the people. The fire of God falls. The glory of God fills the temple. God is in the house. That is the significance there. And now, the next event was that Solomon blessed the people. Verse 54, 1 Kings 8. Now as Solomon finished offering all this prayer and plea to the Lord, he arose from before the altar of the Lord where he had knelt with hands outstretched toward heaven. And he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice saying, Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all His good promise, which He spoke by Moses, His servant. Now notice in verse 56, that word rest. This is the key word to this passage in 1 Kings 8. And it really, as we get it, it should bring shivers. The the thrill of what's happened here in, in salvation history with this word rest. Israel's wilderness wanderings and search for a place where God would establish His name is now over. That place that God has spoken about generations earlier has now been located. The temple has been placed here and there is now a sense in which the people of God are at rest. God's presence among them is at rest in a permanent temple. Verse 57, the Lord our God, says Solomon, be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us or forsake us that he may incline our hearts to him to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments, his statutes and his rules, which he commanded our fathers. Let these words of mine with which I have pleaded before the Lord be near to the Lord our God day and night And may he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel 
as each day requires. Just seeking the blessing of the Lord. But we notice here, in seeking the blessing of the Lord, particularly as we narrow in on verse 30, uh, 58, he says to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his rules. Which is what is meant by inclining our hearts to him. And I would say on the basis of this concept here, that it is irrational to dedicate a building for the worship of God without dedicating the people of God. Solomon understood the temple's glory could be neutralized by the immorality of the people who worshiped there. Similarly to the temple, a church building is a tool to bring glory to God. What makes the tool work is the people who are using it. So yes, the temple in and of itself brought glory to God. Just the way that it was arranged, its very design, its arrangement sent the message that God is holy and is to be approached on His own terms. Everything was calibrated to send that message. The temple itself declared it. The temple announced the glory of God with its ornate design. In fact, the blueprint came from God Himself on some level. And so that temple bespoke the glory of God to all who saw it. And yet, the people of God had the capacity to take this powerful tool and use it to dishonor God. And before we get to the end of 2 Kings, we find they're in fact doing that. Rather than using this temple as intended to magnify the holiness of God and to display, His, to display His glory to the nations, what we find them doing is using this temple to worship the gods of the nations. It's being used for idolatrous purposes. All along, God intended the Israelites who worshipped at the temple to, quote, walk in all His ways to keep His commandments, His statutes, and His rules. Why? A lot of reasons. It was their life. It was for their good. But notice what the text says. Verse 60. Why is it that they should walk in holiness before the Lord? That, for this purpose, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord is God, there is no other. So let your heart... Be wholly true to the Lord our God, walking in His statutes and keeping His commandments as at this day. That you would be wholly true to the Lord. The Hebrew means complete, whole, or entire. To walk in mature obedience to God. So linking back to the previous point, if you see how this fits together, what is the purpose of God's Spirit in dwelling the temple and of Israel living a holy life? It is to display the glory of God to a watching world. And the application, I think, is fairly obvious. This also is our high calling as the new living temple of God. That God would hear in this assembly, in our relationship together, and in our relationship to Him, that God would be put on display for a world to see. That the glory of of God and the saving grace of Christ would be seen by a watching world. And so then it is utterly useless 
to dedicate this building next week if we do not at the same time commit ourselves to display the saving power of Christ. That indeed is the greater challenge. Yes, we dedicate a building. Yes, we say this tool is for the glory of Christ, but we must come dedicating ourselves to carry the message of Christ crucified and risen, to display in our relationships together that He has saved the people by His grace for His glory. That brings us back to remember why we're here today and why we're here at any time. Eden Baptist Church, I know it's our heartbeat, it is our desire that we not play church. This isn't an event to come and to watch and to leave. We don't want to play church. Eden Baptist Church is not a chapel for the American way of life. We are called together by Christ to live a radically distinct life in community such that the watching world says, God is there. God is among those people. There's something different there. There's a sense of holiness. I've actually heard this from visitors, not recently as such, but I've actually heard this, that there is an intimidation as they come into our church. And when, the intimidation coming from a sense that this is a serious bunch of people. They want to walk with God. They take that seriously. And in their relationships to each other and in their relationship to God, they mean business. Well, how do you take that? I say, right, exactly. Now, God knows, as we know, all of our sin and our weakness and our warts. Yet we understand that. But if there's a people of God that wants to go hard after God, that will be intimidating. That's all right. Because what a world that is lost and running away from God needs to see is that there's a different world. There's a different way of life. There are people who really do seek to walk with God. And as they do, they'll be the first to say that they're sinners. In fact, they will see their sin more clearly than anyone else. But we're not playing church. We're seeking to be the dedicated people of God who in our relationships together display the glory of God to a watching world. It's not about us individually. It's not about power politics. It's about us working together to say Jesus Christ is great and greatly to be praised. And we all understand as sinners we need to be intimidated by God. We need to be shocked out of our spiritual lethargy, shocked out of our self-congratulatory inertia. And we need to be brought together before the Lord in humility to witness His transforming power. Back to 2 Chronicles 7, the next event. And the last that we'll look at here today. But 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 4. So the fire of God falls, the glory of God indwells the house. Solomon speaks to the people, calling them to dedicate themselves to the cause of the Lord. And we come then to the next stage in the account, and that's the dedication of the temple. Verse 4. 
Then the king and all the people offered sacrifice before the Lord. King Solomon offered as a sacrifice 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the people dedicated the house of God. Why so many sacrifices? Not a horrible waste of animal life? Just hold that thought for a bit. Suffice it here to say that this is an all-out act of worship for Solomon and his people. He, out of his own resources, commits 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. They were his, and he gave them to the sacrifice of the Lord. The focus here is on dedicating this building. What does that mean, by the way? To dedicate is to set apart, to devote, to consecrate for sacred purposes. They are formally gathering to say, this building is set aside for the service of God. It is devoted to His honor. And they have assembled here to say, we're with that. We join with that process, that program, to dedicate this building to the cause of God to the glory of His name. Verse 6, The priests stood at their post, the Levites also with the instruments of music to the Lord that King David had made for giving thanks to the Lord for His steadfast love endures forever. Singing people because of the steadfast love of the Lord. Whenever David offered praises by their ministry or literally by their hand, opposite them, the priests sounded trumpets and all Israel stood. There's some formality here. There's lifting up of praise and song to the Lord for those gifted to do so. This was a formal event in dedication of this building to the glory of God. And Solomon, verse 7, consecrated the middle of the court that was before the house of the Lord, for there he offered the burnt offering and the fat of the peace offerings, because the bronze altar Solomon had made could not hold the burnt offerings and the grain offerings and the fat. All of this priestly language about how the offerings were to be offered as a priest would read this and understand all of those parts no pun intended but he would he would understand how that all worked in the sacrifice of these animals what's going on there's this temple and in front of it a very large altar that's the temple that's what's being dedicated But there are so many people and so many sacrifices that that one altar cannot be used in sacrifice of all these animals. And so Solomon consecrates in this large courtyard and pavement, he consecrates a a large area where we would assume there's other altars that are established or erected and these animals offered there on those altars. Verse 8. And nine, as we think of the vast number, notice this, at that time Solomon held the feast for seven days, and all Israel with him a very great assembly from Labo Hamath to the brook of Egypt, that would be from the far stretches to the north to the far stretches to the south, the sea on the west, the desert on the east, on this thin strip of land. In other words, all of Israel came. Not every single person, but from the entire stretch of the nation, people are coming. And verse 9, on the eighth day they held a solemn assembly, for they had kept the dedication of the altar seven days, and the feast seven days. And then there's this eighth day. 
The feast here is a reference to the annual week-long Feast of Tabernacles when Israel remembered her wanderings in the desert prior to the conquest of the Promised Land. Isn't that fitting? This national annual feast to remember our wanderings now as we come to say that we are here at rest. The wanderings are over. And the Feast of Tabernacles will continue to be celebrated by the Israelites, but always now with a new sense. There's a place of rest here in the temple. God's presence has come to dwell among us here. So if you put this together, people from the whole nation have come to Jerusalem and they've been together for 15 days. We don't know how many were there, but many. And you put all that together, and what do all those people living together in in the Feast of Tabernacles, let me jump off to the side, one of the things that was part of that was you lived outside in little makeshift tents for a week. So you've got all these people camping out in Jerusalem, and they're there for 15 days. What are they going to want to do? They're going to want to eat, right? Lots and lots of bodies necessitating an awful lot of food. Now these sacrifices, these sacrifices are peace offerings and they were intended to be eaten by the worshipers. Part of the offerings were consumed in the fire to God, but other portions of these animals were consumed as it was a big cookout for 15 days. Everybody camping out together around Jerusalem. It was a great time and a a phenomenal moment of dedication in the history of the nation and so it finishes out in verse 10 that on the 23rd day of the seventh month he sent the people away from their homes joyful and glad of heart for the prosperity that the lord had granted to david and to solomon and to israel his people they were joyful and glad of heart why because they had a great vacation The whole nation is given two weeks off. That would make you pretty glad of heart. Probably make you about ready to go home, too, after you've been there camping out for for two weeks. But certainly that's part of their joy and gladness. Why? Because they were full of food? Solomon put out free food. One thing we've learned as a church, put out free food and people come. They like free food. He's he's put out 22,000 oxen, 120,000 sheep over 15 days. Yeah, that makes everybody happy. But we know that ultimately they're joyful and glad of heart because that is how souls respond when truly involved in the worship of God. God had brought His presence here to reside in this temple. All was right. And they went home from the celebration with glad hearts. Now, as we parallel to our very unique situation. The next Lord's Day, we're not going to gather for 15 days of camping out and grilling meat. In fact, I think, as we've got it planned, we're going to have one simple meal together. That's it. And from what I know, I think we have to actually bring the food ourselves too. (laughs) So we're a long ways from what's going on here. But what's the principle we can grab? Joy and gladness should be an attitude we pursue together as we corporately consider these very same truths, this very same God. 
Joy and gladness should mark us as we come together on every Lord's Day. Joy and gladness should be an active pursuit that we have through this week and as we gather on the Lord's Day. Because, think of it, Eden Baptist Church, because the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Because God's presence indwells His new living temple. He's alive within our souls. He's transformed His people. And we have the privilege to gather together and to celebrate that saving grace. Joy and gladness because thirdly, the privilege of displaying the transforming power of God's indwelling Spirit to a lost world is our calling. We have the privilege to say God is alive. He is working and to call people out of the darkness into the light. And finally, the fellowship of people joining together in partnership to advance the cause of Christ. This should fill us with joy and gladness. So, I've got to think here, and I'm, I'm, this is for myself, as every sermon is for myself, and for you. But I have to work here to not just think of the details of these next few days to simply be details. Exhausting work responsibilities to fulfill, things to get done, and we finish up the dedication service next week and we say, man, am I glad that's over. Now, it's okay if your body says that. I need a rest. But we need to focus our attention to say, think of what God has done and think of what God is doing in His living church, His new temple. And to pursue a spirit of joy and gladness. For me, that's a project. I have to think on that. Or we can be overwhelmed by people, overwhelmed by responsibilities. Let's go for this with that joy of heart. Now there's no way that any of this matters to you at all if you've not come to know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. This doesn't really make any sense in the least. But you need to understand, to grab this from this old historical account of a dedication of a temple, you need to grab the idea that Jesus Christ did not create His church to be an organization of do-gooders. We're not just a social group that helps each other in times of trial and difficulty, that works with each other for funerals and cooperates on weddings and just gets along and lives life together. That's not why Jesus saved His church. This body of Christ has been created by the transforming power of the risen Christ. It is here that He has placed His mark on His people and said, they belong to Me. We're His. We've been conquered. We've been united to Christ. We've been given new spiritual life in Him. Jesus died to pay the judgment of God against our sin in death. And He broke the power of sin in our lives. We continue to struggle with sin, but its power has been broken. And Jesus rose from the dead to give new spiritual life to those who trust His work. We gather here on the Lord's day to say, Jesus lives. and His life is my life. I've been united to Him.
And so then He forms those of us who have come to this saving faith into this new living temple to display His glory to this world. He's come to rest here as we have come to put our rest and our trust in Him. So I think there is clear and helpful instruction as we prepare for dedication. It's all about the presence of God among His people. We are His temple coming together next Lord's Day by His grace to dedicate not merely this building, but to dedicate ourselves. To say, I am a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ to represent Him in this world and to live in His presence, revealing His glory to those around. It is to be a time of joy and gladness as we consider the wonder of being used by God to conquer lives through the message of Christ. This dedication that is coming is not an event. It's not a dry ceremony that we need to endure and show up to say, I'm voting for the church here as I'm part of this dedication. We kind of have to go through this little process. Not at all. And it's not a special day in and of itself. We're not going to add anything to the Lord's Day exalting the resurrected Christ. But what it is, is a dedication of the living church. The dedication of Eden Baptist Church to be used by God to walk in obedience and to display to this dying world that Jesus Christ is great and greatly to be praised. Let's come in that spirit and let's leave with joy and gladness to know God and to serve Him. Let's bow for prayer. We give thanks, our Father, We don't know how to articulate the wonder in our hearts as we consider what Jesus Christ has done. To save us from our sin, to give us hope and life. Thank you for the saving work of Christ. We pray in behalf of those who have not come to that light, for those who have not been infused with that power and that zeal to serve Christ until the day that they die and to enter into his presence knowing that that is the ultimate reward change them help them to see the reality of this world and the next for those of us who know you I pray that in this next week that you will work uniquely I pray for this gathering on Thursday evening and pray as we invite this community to come. I pray that there would be response. I ask that as people consider the history and the purpose of this church, as they see our interaction with each other, they see the joy and the gladness that we have to be serving Christ, I pray they'd realize it's not in a building. This place is going to crumble. It's going to be destroyed. It's just a temporary shell. God, I pray that they'd see in our faces, coming from our words and from the Spirit that pulsates between us, that they would see here the living God. 
Father, how far short we fall of our calling. But I pray that by your grace, through the prayers of your people, through our concentration, that we will be a light to the lost world coming in among us on Thursday night. Bring open hearts. Bring people who need the rebuke of the gospel, who need the saving grace of Christ. We pray that you'll move uniquely. We pray, Father, in the dedication services, you give us a life that will take place next week. I ask that you would infuse us with strength, allow us to get the rest that we need this week, and yet to fulfill the many projects that need to yet be accomplished. But I pray that it would be a time where we rejoice not merely in a building, but we rejoice to dedicate ourselves to the future that you would have for us as we strive to display the glory of God in a world that is in rebellion against Him, that is in rebellion against you. Please teach us, prepare us, and aid us. And may we leave in a week from today, again, as you permit, may we leave with joy and gladness of heart that we have had a part in your work. Thank you for all that you've done, for what you are doing to change this body of believers. We pray that you'll continue to pour out your grace and that it would be clear that God's presence is here. As that intimidates some, I pray that it would warm the hearts of others and draw them in to the love of God. For your steadfast love is never ceasing. Your mercies never come to an end. May we rejoice through Christ. Amen.